Next Chapter Podcasts. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Come on up for the rising. Come on up, lay your head in mine. Ski-diving, bee-bobba-dooboo. It's the rising by Bruce Springsteen off his 2002 album called The Rising. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, I feel like that song should be played as everybody is released from quarantine. Ignore the verses where they're talking about the Twin Towers and running in there. But just that chorus and the la-la-las, that is one of the most powerful things I've ever heard. It is also off of an album that is number 424 out of 500 on the Spotify Ridge, the 500 with Josh Adam. Who that? Oh, me that? Myers. What's up, everybody? All my true dukes in the fleece army acting all doogly spoogly. Thank you guys for joining me on the only podcast that is going through Rolling Stone Magazine's list of the 500 greatest albums. I thought of something that was really cool and it didn't even occur to me, but the Tommy Chong episode that came out last week, us doing Graham Parsons, it just so happens to have been released the same week as 420. That's the universe, man. That is the universe giving us a doogly spoogly kadookie mookie i don't even know what i'm saying anymore because maybe i'm recording this on 420 who knows also i want to give a big shout out to my man gino at speedweed los angeles um he's been hooking me up since we started the quarantine for years this dude's been hooking me up so if you guys are in the los angeles area and you want to get high and you don't want to have to go pick up anything la speedweed just look it up and he'll hook you guys up also, do the Instagram stories, guys. Show me how you're listening to the podcast and put that shit on Instagram for me. We're getting the word out. It's cool. It's so cool seeing how many people are doing this and how many people are digging the records and how many people are thanking me for being the catalyst, even though I didn't do shit. I just had an existential crisis and uh, was like, dude, I, I can't listen to Stone Temple Pilots Purple anymore. I need some new Mew Zach. And this is what's cool about this Bruce record that I'm about to explain, because I actually like knew the hits. I knew what he dug. I knew everything about Bruce, and I'd seen him in concert, and I've loved him, but I never listened to his records. And then this record, I just always kind of poo-pooed it. I don't know why. I never listened to it. It's incredible, because I think a lot of the same themes that we're feeling with 9-11 are we're experiencing right now in, in some weird kind of cosmic way. So here's the story of it. Released on July 30th, 2002 and produced by Brendan O'Brien, this is the 12th studio record by Bruce Springsteen. This was his first in seven years and his first with the E Street Band, I think in 18 years. Shortly after 9-11, this is dope, Bruce was walking along and a stranger in a car pulled up. 
roll down the window to tell him four words. We need you now. So what did Bruce do? Bruce set to writing songs influenced by the terrorist attack, often from the point of view of the victims, and added some previously written songs that he had done in the past that stirred up similar feelings of loss and pain, balanced by resilience and hope. Then he assembled the E Street Band, and they had him played together on a Springsteen record since 1984's Born in the USA, which was a mega hit. And the E Street Band, if you don't know, are Danny Federici on organs, Roy Bitten on keyboards, Gary Talent on bass, Niles Lofgren and Lil Steven Van Zandt on guitars, Max Weinberg of the Max Weinberg 7 on drums, and Patty's wife, Patty. Oh, fuck, I'm going to fuck this up. Shalfa? Fuck! I know that's wrong. Shalfa? <laughs> I'm so sorry, Patty. And Bruce on vocals, and of course, the big man, Clarence Clemens, on saxophone. I love Clarence. Clearly, this was Springsteen's triumphant return. And although it only reached number 34 on the Billboard chart, it won 2003's Grammy for Best Rock Album of the Year and title song won Best Rock Song and Best Male Rock Vocal Performance. It would be four years before Bruce would release another record with 2007's Magic. But sadly, organist Danny Federici died of cancer the next year. Although the E Street Band did play at the 2009 Super Bowl halftime show and toured that year, but that would be the last year that the E Street Band would be able to perform with saxophonist Clarence Clemens, who died of complications from a stroke in 2011. The E Street Band itself was given an honorary induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2014 under the Award for Musical Excellence category, and various members continue to record and perform with Springsteen. Also, the E Street Band hasn't played live with Bruce since 2017. Bruce did kind of tease us by saying there might be something going on in 2020, but with the way everything's kind of going in the world right now, I don't think Bruce is going to be able to fill out a stadium until 2029. We're locked in till the year 3000. But you know who I wasn't not locked in with because I was dialed in? Is that a weird segue? The one and only guest today, the coolest man I know, Greg Fitzsimmons. You guys know Greg from his incredible podcast, Fitzdog Radio. You know from his other podcast, Sunday Papers, from Childish. You know him from Politically Incorrect, The Man Show. I mean, the dude is, he's been on uh, Rogan a bunch. This guy, huge Bruce fan. And there's it's funny because we, we tried to, like, record this and then, well, you'll see. You'll see what happened, everybody. I'm not going to ruin the surprise. It's so funny. We had such a good time. And I loved it. So dig in. Rate, review, and most importantly, subscribe to The 500 and listen free on Spotify. Follow me at Josh Adam Myers on all social media. Email the podcast at 500podcast at gmail.com. Follow the Facebook group, The 500 Podcast with Jam. And we got a 500 Podcast fan page. For all things 500, go to our website, the500podcast.com. Well, guys, nothing left to say, but hey, Bruce, you want to take this? Well, sure I do. Is that good, Bruce? Here we go. Here, it should be more like, here we go with number 420. Four out of 500. The Rising by Bruce Springsteen. Come on, start the episode. Start the episode. But do, 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 do. There you go, y'all. I'm wearing the stairs.
into the Greg. Ah, your Fitz Simmons, Simmons, and your Greg, and your Fitz, and your Simmons, and your Greg. All right, full disclosure, everybody. This is the second time we've recorded this because <laughs> Greg forgot to hit record. And there was fucking I also I go. I said something that the FBI would arrest me for related to the president. <laughs> he dropped, so we have to redo it. He dropped like nine N bombs. It was insane. Luckily, it was destroyed. <laughs> All right. So I tried to get you on this podcast about nine months ago because Tunnel of Love was on the list and everybody said, get Greg Fitzsimmons. I reached out to you, and what did you say to me? Said, I'm sorry, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) Nailed it. I was perplexed. (laughs) I felt a little apprehensive, you know. Um, Now, we... I think we had hung out in Phoenix at some point, we did. right? We saw, Is that we where saw I first the, met you? Yeah, we saw The Last Jedi together with me, That's you, right. Brad, and uh, Big Brad J. Brad Williams. Big J. Not Brad J. Williams' not wife. Brad Williams' wife. Um, big Irish J. Big Hollingswood. Irish J. Yeah. Hollingshead. On yeah. I, like a couple days, I think a couple days after Christmas, and it was magical, and then we ate at a at like a Jimmy John's or like a Johnny Rockets. In a mall. In a mall. Yeah. In, in Arizona, and I was like, dude, you should do my podcast, and you said, the album is what? <laughs> and <laughs> said, who are you? Who are you? <laughs> why do you, why, you said you hated Tunnel of Love. I don't know if you said hate. Hate's a strong word, but you said you definitely. I, I said it was my least favorite album, which is, you know, you know, and then I went back and I listened to it, and there's actually one song on there that I like, but I had, is a, it? Wait, I had What is it? What is it? What is it? It's got to be. Well, probably Tunnel of Love. No, I mean, it's tougher than the Atlantic rest. City? Oh, is it? Tougher than the rest is like tougher one of than the, the rest, dude. It's yeah. it's 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 poetry. It's beautiful. It's got the bridge in it that is because Bruce Springsteen. What I love about Bruce is Bruce is the king of bridges. Like his song verse yeah. chorus is great, but then he hits you with, "Well, it's a cold, dark, lonely, <laughs> and the road is long," and you're like, "Oh my god!" Yeah, he's, he's the yeah. shit. I, I actually love Tunnel of Love, but. For my listeners, because it's ev- also my it's my nickname for my wife's asshole, so I always feel like <laughs> it would be a betrayal to talk about it. <laughs> All right, so so tell me how how you got into Bruce Springsteen because everybody when they said get a Bruce Springsteen fan, get Greg Fitzsimmons. So why 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 are you such a huge Bruce fan? Well, I got on early because um, I grew up in New York and my dad was a radio guy, and so he was a you know he was a broadcaster, and so. We used to get, it was like Christmas, like three days a week. We would get, you know, the mailman would come and you'd have these thick boxes with records that all the different labels would send uh, to try to get my dad to play the music. You know, this is back in the payola days, baby. Oh, yeah, dude. And they tra- they try to get us to play their records. <laughs> and so most of them were crap. I mean, it was like a lot of bands that you'd never heard of. And then we'd, we, and then I would, but I would listen to most of them and- I was really into music and I, and I discovered Bruce really before he was on the radio. And so I just had this love affair. I was, I was young. I was probably like 11 or 12 years old. And, um, he just struck me and I stuck with him. But then growing up in New York, you know, we listened to hard rock and we listened to classic rock and Bruce was, when he blew up with born with uh, born to run 
they started playing this thing on WPLJ in New York. There was uh, Jim Jim Ladd or one of one of those guys had a segment on WNEWFM called uh, Bruce Juice. So every morning they would play a Bruce Springsteen song, and it was so fucking corny. And at the time, Rolling Stone magazine had a famous cover that said uh, that said uh, the future of rock and roll on it, and it was his picture. And it was very overblown. For Bruce. Oh wow! Yeah, there was a lot of hype, and there was a lot of uh, I forget. It might have been uh, Greer, Greer Mark Greer Marcus who wrote the uh, the piece. It was a very influential piece, but it blew it blew a, it hurt Bruce in the long run because there was so much hype that friends like my friends all just fucking hated him. Yeah. And so I, I had to go, go into hiding and I would be alone <laughs> in my bed grounded and I would be listening to Springsteen albums. And just, it just, I can just imagine like your friends are out. Like you want to come out tonight, Greg? You're like, nah, I got to stay in. And you just laying on your bed holding uh, the record for born to run. And it's just, yeah. Oh, come take my hand. Yeah. Run, I've got a, I got a bandana wrapped around my head and some, <laughs> Motorcycle boots. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to make. I'm trying to make ever. one black friend just like Bruce did, <laughs> yeah. and uh, and so it was like very discreet. It was like me watching porn around my wife. It was like <laughs> I wasn't proud of it, but I was passionate about it, and so I would listen, and I'd be grounded a lot, and I could listen. Like I could just remember in the summer nights, my window would be open. And I could hear in the distance, like, tires squealing and teenagers laughing. And I could see the whole skyline of New York City out my window. And I just felt like somehow he was my, like, conduit to this world that I was missing out on. He he was able to, like, encapsulate the loneliness, the excitement, the newness of being a teenager, the the absoluteness about it, like the, you know, he put things in, he put teenage activities in biblical terms, and yeah. that is how it feels as wow. a teenager. It feels so big. Were you doing and, any? Were you doing any of the stuff that he was singing about? Because oh I, yeah, I mean, so you you were a greaser. <laughs> I wasn't a gre- I wasn't a greaser, but my friend, a lot of my friends were, but it was more just like. Um, Again, like the rawness of being in a place you wanted to break out of. And I think that's how it's, to me, it's almost like a, it's a metaphor for your own family. It's about that rite of passage of going from being under your father's thumb and going out and getting in a car and driving away. Yeah. How many, how many times have you seen Bruce live in any memorable shows? Probably like fifteen times. The, the, I think the I think the best one I ever saw, without a doubt, was uh, after um, after high school ended. I I didn't want to go to college, and so I um, I worked two jobs. I was a caddy during the day nice. at a country club, and then at night I, I was a cook at a TGI Fridays. And so Even better job. <laughs> you should have just gone pro. Should have yeah, gone pro right? at TGI Fridays. Right. Yep. <laughs> Suspenders, buttons, and. Uh, and so I saved up $3,000 and I got a backpack and a trench coat. I don't know why I got a trench coat. And I went to Europe for like uh, seven months. And I saw Bruce a bunch of times, but the best was I was in Greece and I scored a ticket to the 4th of July show at Wembley Stadium in London. And oh. it was the Born in the USA tour. 
and it was general seating, and I got there early, and I was down close. And I remember I hadn't eaten all day. I literally had run out of money. I was flying home the next morning, and I had run out of money. I had enough money to get a train ticket to the airport, and my <laughs> I had my, my ticket in my pocket, and that was it. And I remember being dizzy, and it was hot as shit out. It was a daytime concert, and uh, and I just like I floated. I just floated above that stadium, and I was just like, I, it was like my welcome back to America concert. I, I was hoping you were going to say I had a choice. I had enough money for a choice between eating that day or getting one of those big foam Bruce Springsteen fingers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and I got right. the Springsteen finger. I ate. Yeah, I ate the knuckle, but. <laughs> Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. All right. Yeah. So I could listen. I, I, I love how you just put that about how, you know, I wish Bruce would have gotten into my life. Uh, and he kind of did because I went to a concert when I, I think I was 13, 14 to see Lucky Thumbs with my buddy Greg. My buddy Greg and his dad loved Bruce. And I, and I knew the hits, but I never got into the the albums until I started doing this podcast. So like we did Tunnel of Love, which I loved, and then we've done this one. And this one's a little bit different than the rest of his records because there is a a purpose. And I know that sounds weird, but right. there is a real purpose of healing and expression because this is his nine eleven record. So where right. where what was your nine eleven experience? Well I was um it was funny because my mom, my mom was, um, she was on a plane. She was on a plane at JFK Airport on nine eleven, about to fly out on a nine a.m. flight. Oh my god! Out of JFK, so I was uh, up. My son was eleven months old. My wife was sleeping, so I was up in the morning. I always took the morning shift, and my buddy called me because um, he was on the East Coast, and he said, "Turn on the news." So I turned on the news, and I saw that one of the one of the tower a plane had flown into one of the towers. And so I thought, you know, like I think like 90% of people I thought there was an accident. And then as I was watching and the second plane hit, all of a sudden everything turned upside down and you suddenly had to reconfigure your reality and see that you know, America was under attack and being in Los Angeles, you felt like, well, if they're hitting, if they're hitting New York and they're hitting DC, you know, LA's certainly next. LA yeah. is on the list. And so I, I felt very, you know, I live in Venice beach and I felt very, um, having a baby, especially I think kind of 
like made me feel even more sort of uh you know agitated and you just go to your and, wife you're like they just hit the pentagon they hit the twin towers abbott kinney is next 100 percent. they're coming for abbott's habit <laughs> they want to take down the politicians wall street and the hipsters anybody playing hacky sack has got a bullseye on them right now that's right <laughs> um so i woke up my wife and we're laying in bed watching it and she's from new york city and so we're just crying yeah. And she's got, you know, I've got a brother who lives in the city. She's got a sister, a mother, a father, cousins, I mean, all over the city. And so, and again, my mom's on a plane. I don't know if she had taken off. I didn't know, you know, what happened or yeah. how the fuck she's going to get out of an airport in New York. And so, um, so, and then meanwhile, I got my 11-month-old son who's crawling on us and who's laughing and playing. And I thought, like, the juxtaposition of this young life being so free and, you know, happy with this horrible, traumatic experience was just like, uh, it was weird. It was almost like in the moment, it reminded me that no matter how bad this gets, like, life's going to move forward, yeah. you know? I don't know if you can hear they're they're mowing the lawn outside my studio window here. Oh, they stopped. It's a jackhammer, actually. <laughs> um, I, I gotta tell you, man, because I I had you know, nine eleven. I remember I was twenty one when it happened. I, I I was more. I was so young. I was in college. I didn't appre- I didn't appreciate how heavy the situation was as, as a world event. I just looked at it like, oh man, that was horrible, a terrorist attack. But I was so caught up in just trying to get laid and finishing college that I didn't actually get to really fully accept it and grasp and think about it. Listening to this record, I got to heal my 9-11 experience. Whereas now I've grown up, I, I appreciate how serious it was and how many lives were lost. And I don't know if there has ever been a better way to honor the people that lost their lives than with this record. Yeah, I mean, certainly for 9-11, I'm trying to think of other tragedies and music that came out afterwards. God, that's a kind of interesting... Well, this is... Listen, I I you th- I think this record is, is a better honoring of the firefighters than the Freedom Tower. This record, you know, was not going to be made. Bruce was walking down the street with Patty... And a fan was like getting into a car or something. Maybe it was the opposite way where he's getting into a car and a fan looked him right in the eyes and they connected for a second. And the guy said to Bruce, he goes, we need you right now. And then he went home and wrote this album. And Right. And the thing is, to put that in context, he hadn't put an album out in like, I don't know how long, but like like the biggest gap in his career by far. I think it was like Ghost of Tom Jode or something, and which was a, which was a you know acoustic, and so I was even I was kind of like not into him that as much. I wasn't into his new new albums as much, and um, and also he hadn't played with the East no, Street he, Band. He hadn't true. recorded he hadn't with, the East, with the, he hadn't played with the East Street in a Band long time. Uh, in years. Yeah, and they came together yeah. for this album. I dude, I'm so glad that we had a few days. Uh, for me to really, really dig in and read the lyrics and, and feel these songs. Not every song, uh, I don't love every song. I'm not going to lie to you. But I connect with it 
on the level of of being able to empathize with the people and lives that were disrupted from from 9-11. I mean, what are your thoughts listening to this record now with all the history of you being a Bruce fan, having your 9-11 experience and then being and then being asked to dig into this, you know, fucking Jesus. What is it? 18, almost 18 years. Yeah, it's 18 years from when this record came out. Yeah, I think it was. um it was really powerful at the time because it was at the time when, as a comedian, you were told that you couldn't make jokes about 9-11. Really? Which, of course, some people were good enough that they were able to. Like, I remember Louis C.K., and this is a month after. This is a month after it. Yeah. He goes on stage and he goes, uh, he goes, they say you can mark your humanity by how long you waited to masturbate after 9-11. <laughs> I jerked off in between the first and second towers going down. <laughs> yeah, I know that joke. That's great. That's a that's a fucking gold. So it was there. like, and I think that everybody in the arts felt like this, like, you know, when is, what is the right tone? Because the tone was changing constantly, you know, whether or not it was shock, grief, anger, vengeance, um, feeling like you want to take care of your brother, all of those things revolving on a regular basis yeah. and so it was trying to write an album that would match up with it was hitting a moving target and so what he did was he did away with all of it except for i think the sense of loss and the sense of um of uh fortitude but also and, there's some there's some vengeance stuff in this. There's a lot of mixed emotions in this. It's basically the way that everybody in America felt during that time. Yeah, which was, yeah, I guess dude, you're right. Got, there was dude, there was a lot. lot. There's a lot of vengeance. There's I mean, I don't lonesome day. I mean, but a lot of the verses and we'll get into this in a second, but a lot of the verses it might start off it was a beautiful day and I'm doing stuff and then the second yeah. verse is like blood on the streets. Yeah, you know, like they right. cuz that's the way that we felt. I mean, dude, right. we got into a war with right. not just Afghanistan, but but because of the way that we felt in our in in the United States, we let Bush just go into Iraq because we were still a year and change later pissed off. You know, I mean, it's I feel like this is what this is these yeah. are my thoughts on this record that I, that I think before we dive into this are, are just I think he perfectly captures every different angle that you can look at that tragic event and he does it i mean as good as any great poet would i mean he has he i think this record not only resonates from me being alive in 2001 but having being in the the quarantine and what we're dealing with with the coronavirus right now there are a lot of similar feelings and themes dude the rising, if you put your headphones on as as the president and Gavin Newsom are like, all right, you guys can go back to work and leave your houses. Dude, they should just be blaring the rising as we walk outside. It's just, it feels apt. Wait, are you saying we should go back out? Well, not yet, but I'm just saying when we do, put the rising right. on, walk outside, you know, yeah. and fucking <laughs> just, yeah. come on, ski, baba, dooba. Well, the rising, I mean, to me, the moment where uh, I can remember when at Obama's inauguration, when they played it and it was coming out of a time where, you know, it was a very dark time. You know, yeah. 
Iraq was going on, and uh, I think a lot of people felt that, like under under George Bush, that you know, um, you know, that the country was was not in good hands. And then all of a sudden, Obama gets inaugurated, and just the vision of a of a, a black president standing yeah. up there. And Springsteen comes up with a full fucking choir. There must have been 50 people behind him, uh, you know, in a very diverse choir. And there's a full orchestra at his feet. And he just comes up, you know, dressed like a fucking Jersey bum. And he's got an acoustic guitar and he plays The Rising. And I mean, I'm telling you, it was euphoric. I I had tears rolling down my face. It was just so powerful. And what what a choice of music yeah. by Obama to play in his inauguration address. That that song is so perfect, and you can take it on the surface as a very sad, you know, because the because the firefighter dies in it. But also the this the, that chorus and the la la las is just is is written to be sung with you know sixty thousand people there all singing yeah. with you, you know, and it's got this this like ray of hope in it. As well, yeah. rising. All right, let's listen. Right. Let's let's dive into the album, okay? All right, so the the album opens with Lonesome Day. It starts with these dope cello players. It's also the second single off the record. And like I said, the first verse sounds like a love song about missing somebody, but then it turns into what sounds like a Vietnam vets manifesto. I mean, this shit is fucking dark. Uh, Here's sample lyrics. He goes, Hell's brewing, dark sun's on the rise. The storm will blow through by and by. House is on fire, vipers in the grass. But partway through, you can really actually tell that this is about America's pain. And just like the Hurt Lovers uh, can often seek like rash revenge Bruce warns to stay calm and not retaliate advice which Bush and Cheney 100% didn't follow Peter uh, play a little taste of the song better ask questions before you shoot to see the betrayals so this is the way they were starting the record. I, I didn't connect with this song right off the bat. What about you? Oh, no, I love this song. Oh, my God. I love so it. Beautiful. I love it after a few more listens, but right off yeah. the jump, I was like, this is this is about 9-11? It just was too, yeah. it was just too, like, like, upbeat poppy until I started reading the lyrics, and then I saw, you know, he's talking about deceit, betrayal, bitter fruit, you know, letting it slip away, tasting your tongue, like all that bullshit. So let me ask you a question. What's the longest you've held a grudge? I got tr- I got grudges from grade school. Still, yeah, I got a, I got a grudge against a kid from um, junior high school, and if I conjure up what this kid did to me, I honestly feel like I could punch him in the face when I saw him today, and I'm 54 years old. Wait, what did he do? He was like, there was this girl that I liked, and we were down at this lake that we used to skate at in the winter, and uh, I was flirting with her, and then he came up behind me, skating as hard as he could, and he leveled me, and I fell down, and I was winded, and I couldn't get up, and then he laughed at me, and uh, he was a, he was a lot bigger than me, and he used to lift weights, so I didn't fight him, and... I, I think back to that time and I think the next time I saw that kid I should have just walked up and punched him, him in the face. Oh fuck yeah. And I and I didn't and 
And the things that stay with me is when I didn't fight back. Yes. You know, I mean, I, I don't have regrets if I went for it, but I didn't go for it then, and I, and it sits with me. Have you ever have you ever yelled at him uh, in your car? Like, you ever had the conversation you wish you would have said to him, you know, after you would have punched him, like, to yourself in the shower? Maybe in my mind. I don't think I've said it out loud because I live with other people. No, I get it. I get it. So, so listen, all the Kadoogles out there listening to this podcast, if there's somebody that pisses you off currently in your life and they did something fucked up to you, go back. Go back and fucking pop them in the motherfucking face. You might get in trouble. I'm coming for you, Chris Spencer. <laughs> Fuck Chris Spencer, dude. I could, dude. I, I, I know. So, there's so many people. I wish I could go back and pop in the face. All right, let's move on. Next song, "Into the Fire." All right, so I was completely oblivious about the picture Bruce was trying to paint until I read the lyrics. But this tribute to the first responding NYFD who selflessly put themselves in harm's way and all the losses because of that. And I think Bruce paints the picture perfectly. Uh, Peter, play 32 seconds in. I need your key. Up the stairs, into the fire. I, I mean, hearing him sing that now, like, I almost got choked up in that moment. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's just so powerful, man. It's all so powerful, but so much of the melodies are there. That one's a little heavy, but so many of them are, you know, in the backdrop of of these lyrics, or the music's in the backdrop. Yeah. Uh, you've got these heavy lyrics, and you've got these melodies that, that are hopeful. Yes. Oh, 100%. This isn't like just dark, dark. I mean, there are some dark songs on it, but on every one, he's singing about the most fucked up shit that happened to families and lives around the world. And and yet the song is like, you can still hum this as you're, as you're like, dude, I listened to this record when I was working out today. And it like, and it just, you know, there's a beat to it. The, the, the melodies, like you said, uplifting. It's great. Yeah. That's a hundred percent. I know my son, I worked out with my son yesterday and I was listening to the album and I go, I go, I go, there's an album I need to listen to while we're working out. And he said, what is it? I go, it's Bruce Springsteen. It's this album he put out after nine 11. He goes, I can't fucking work out to that. I go, no, trust me. You can work out to this album. Yeah. And, uh, and he really dug it. He liked it. But, but I mean, you, you compare that to like, you know, Dylan, when he was, uh, making albums around the Vietnam war, you know, Masters of War, where it's just downstroke chords with almost it just really sad, heavy music with the heavy lyrics. That was a very different kind of a uh, an approach to it. Yeah, make you want to kill yourself. This doesn't. This gives you this. There's that that in every tragedy, there's beauty in what we're dealing with right now. There's something good is going to come of this. So let me ask you because you're you're doing. I didn't start stand up till two thousand and eight. You know, well, you're, you're doing great. Thank you, buddy. I, I appreciate that. Can I open for you in Arizona? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, but what was that like? What was that like trying to uplift audiences after 9-11? Like how, let me ask you, how how long did, from 9-11 to your first set on, on stage? How many days? Well, I remember I was supposed to do a show with Janine Garofalo in D.C. a week after it happened, and I was ready to go. I was like, let's do it. And she canceled. And I remember thinking, we can't cancel. 
You know, we need to do this right now. And I, I remember I didn't, a lot of the road stuff was canceled, but in the city people were doing shows. And so I went out and I was doing shows and I felt like, you know, there were ways of joking about, it's like there's always a, a tangent that you can make fun of that doesn't maybe go to the heart of it. Yeah. You know, like I remember, I remember when it first happened, I said, uh, I said, you know, now uh, since 9-11, you can't take a uh, a taxi to the airport. You know, it's, uh, and I said, well, what, what better way of stemming the flow of Muslims to the airport than, only- <laughs> oh, no, no, you can't, you can only take a taxi to the airport. You can't take a pri- you can't drive your own car cuz what better way of stemming the flow of Muslims to the airport than only allowing taxis? <laughs> and people laughed at that and then I thought, I don't know, is that xenophobic? And I went, "No, it's just New York. It's just a New York joke." Yeah. So so was it hard? I mean, was it was it hard? What were the audiences like? They were joyful. They were ha- people go to see comedy because they don't That's why I don't really talk politics in my stand up. I don't really believe there's comics that are political comics. You know, you have people like Lewis Black. Yeah. There are masters of doing political comedy. And David Cross. And their their crowd comes out because they want to hear this topic. And they want to hear how this comedian handles these different stories. But that's not why people come to see me. And unless I decide I'm going to become a political comedian, I'm a guy that tells jokes to people that worked all week, maybe in a fucking factory, Maybe they got both parents working, they hired a babysitter, they come out, and they want to escape and they want to laugh. And so, not to say I don't tackle serious subjects, but I try to figure out, you know, um, what, how I can take what's in me that I think is funny and connect that to people. I don't think about necessarily like, what's going on in the political, cultural terrain that I need to examine. That's just not the kind of comedian I am. And I find that most crowds are coming out because, you know, they want to fucking laugh. It's that simple. And I'd gone through my father dying when I was, I was pretty new at comedy when my dad died. Uh, He died young. And I remember going on stage like a week later and it was the first time in in a week that I hadn't been uh, thinking about my father and sad and depressed and confused and all that stuff. It was for me. It was very freeing. Yeah. It was like it was like a meditation. My mind just went somewhere else for that time yeah. on stage. And I think I felt the same way about going on after nine eleven. It was a chance for me to like feel some stuff I hadn't felt in a while. Yeah, and then and and then you just did ten minutes about how much you hate Muslims, right? That's right. I try to I try to celebrate the human spirit, but also take down false uh, false enemies. You were just like, God, this feels so good. Yeah, yeah it's so racism. fucking Brad. <laughs> All right, let's get into waiting on a sunny day. Welcome to us talking about our podcast for a minute. What's the name of that podcast? That's Axe to Grind, uh, and right now you're going to be getting a little a little taste of it, right down to the shaky microphone and all. <laughs> and my name's Bob. And my name's Patrick, and usually we're joined by Tom. Tom's the best. Tom has a real grown-up job that requires him to be at work, but we talk about decidedly not-so-grown-up things like... Hardcore music and things that people that like hardcore music tend to like. So that could be the latest shows, uh... 
revisiting classic material, talking about the new classics, um, all the little dorm room nonsense that you imagine from a niche music podcast that, that you either love, want to love, or hate. Yeah, imagine all the emotions that you have towards a genre that, that uh, has impacted your life uh, and then condense them down to an hour to two hours a week. So triangulate your speakers, think about jumping off the bed, singing along, dancing like an idiot, and listen to Axe Grind Podcast. Porn, Satan, drugs, therapy. It's not just the list of what I'm up to this weekend. I'm comedian Kiki Anderson, and those are just a handful of the taboo topics I've poked and prodded at so far on my podcast, Indecent, the show where we peel at the wallpaper of polite society. Each episode digs into the dark underbelly of our culture to dissect the things we aren't allowed to talk about around the dinner table, featuring conversations with comedians, activists, journalists, academics. They all help me figure out the who, what, and why behind what is and isn't acceptable behavior. Indecent with Kiki Anderson, where NSFW meets LMAO. So this was the final single, and it was actually written in the 90s, but had only been performed by the band during sound checks. And Bruce wrote this in the style of Smokey Robinson, which I completely agree with. Now, we don't really know the the true like definition of this song. It could be about carefree, happy life before 9-11 or the optimism that there will one day be good times again. I do think this is a fun song. It's a good song. But in a sense, to me, it kind of sounded like something off of a Springsteen Christmas album. Peter, play a little bit. could totally hear him be like now santa coming down the chimney tonight we've got the <laughs> presents and they're set up so nice i get i it's too it's just like one of those things where it's like okay all right i get it i got lonesome day i got fucking into the fire and then waiting on a sunny day it's just like uh I don't know if this should be on this record. There's a couple songs that I'm just like, maybe you should have left these out. They're not bad. They're great songs yeah. on different albums, just not my favorites and flowed with, I think, the vibe that I already got from the first I don't tracks. know. I think he was trying to keep, I think he was trying to keep it net positive. No, you know? 100%. 100%. All right. Uh, next song, Nothing Man. So much like the last one, this was recorded in 94 for an unreleased project, but retooled and re-recorded for this album. Bruce originally referred to this as a soldier song, but after 9-11, it took on a new meaning. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. I only understand Dude, this was this is what I fucking love about taking these old songs and putting them on this record. Now, whereas Waiting on a Sunny Day, good song. Nothing Man is 100% Bruce down the line. And this could be about the survivor's guilt or the depression that comes from from being in Vietnam, from being a firefighter, from being a rescue worker, because I don't think there's a difference. I think they're all apt. It's about being heroic, performing a heroic act, being in that kind of life. It's the hurt locker. You can't go back to your normal life. Yeah, 
Right, right. Yeah, and I think that um, that's what I think as a man, you know, you want to have, you saw Americans have different responses to the tragedy. Like you said, going into Iraq when we didn't belong there, it was this, it was this challenge to our machismo to say like, well, what are you going to do about it? And it was like, the truth is there wasn't much you could do about it. You had to, as a man, you had to like, you know, respect what the firemen had done and the paramedics had done. But then there was a part of you that wanted to, you know, rage back. And I think that's part of the sadness of the song is that you, you have to just eat it. Yeah. I, I this is now I start feeling like this part of the record is when the album really really starts taking on, you know the 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 flow. I don't know if you want to call it that that we're going to be experiencing through the rest of the album, and I think that's why it's so good is that it's going from these super poppy songs to something heavy like this, and he captures it perfectly. The next song, "Counting on a Miracle," this is from someone who lost a loved one through a tragedy. Uh, who is trapped in a nightmare fairy tale with no happy ending. Uh, it references fairy tales to paint the reality of the attacks against the ideas of hope as well as eternal love and happiness that fairy tales emphasize. I mean, you can see it in, like, he's not, like, it's not just hyperbole. It's like, Sleeping Beauty awakens from her dream with her lover's kiss on her lips. Your kiss was taken from me. Now all I have is this. Now, like I said earlier Bruce is the king of bridges and he does not disappoint in Counting on a Miracle uh, Peter play the bridge you kiss you kiss you touch you touch you yeah I mean that's the Bruce that I loved yeah and he was back you know that that guy who goes to an unconscious place where his his passion just comes out. Yeah. You know, it's, it's just there. It's more real. It's more uh, genuine than it had been for a long time. It feels right. It just feels like a Bruce Springsteen song about tragedy. And like you said, it's none of this. He, the shit he's saying is horrible and sad. And yet the music is powerful and it's made to be performed live. And I and I and it's I really feel like this part of the record is when it really starts taking shape. So I want to talk about when you took shape in comedy. What was the moment you felt confident in stand up comedy? Huh? Jeez, that's a good question. Um, I think maybe. You know, I started, I, I went to college in Boston and I started doing stand-up while I was in college and then I stuck around Boston for a couple more years after I graduated. And then I had to kind of fight my way into the New York scene. So I would I would drive back and forth from New York to, uh, to the city and I would spend like three days in New York and three or four days in Boston and, and that went on for like a couple of years. And then I finally like really broke into the New York scene. And I think when I was like going from, when I had like two and three sets a night in New York, getting paid 20 bucks a spot, taking taking fucking New York City yellow cabs yeah. across the park to run into a club and get introduced. Like, I think that's when I really felt like here I am going up with, you know, Dave Attell and, yeah. you know, Nick DiPaolo and all these great comics. And it, it made me feel like, uh, yeah, now I'm in the game. Yeah, I can imagine. That's such a great feeling. 
like when you first not just not just start getting to perform at the clubs, but when you get off stage and they're like, oh, yeah, here's your pay. And you're like, oh, yeah, like this is like it's real. Like this is real now. I'm not just some like some open micer anymore. And in New York, it just feels even more like that, because like you said, you're doing multiple shit a night. Well, especially because like I started off going to all those same clubs as a teenager. We used to sneak into the clubs when we were like 16 and go to the improv and catch a rising star and pay to see comedians yeah. and to be on those same like sacred floorboards as I'd seen Seinfeld and Paul Reiser and Richard Belzer and all the guys that were the regulars back then. And to have them hand me money for standing on that same stage was like mind blowing. Yeah, I, I, I think the moment for me where I really, really started to get confident and believe in myself even more was when I got new faces at Just for Laughs because that was like the first victory I had ever really gotten. Like I had gotten past at the improv and the Laugh Factory and I was like in development at the comedy store at the time. But it was like when I got new faces, I was like, well, no, no one can say that I'm not a comic now. Like right. I, I am 100% a comedian and it's validated. All right. Moving on to Empty Sky. And what I love about this album and Bruce is, like I said earlier, is that he starts the song with a verse that could be about love or, like, missing love, but then he drops some heavy shit on you. Peter, play the second verse. Blood on the streets. Yeah, blood flowing down. I hear the blood. It's got that added rage about whomever took this loved one from them. You know, it's like, that's why, that's why I think so far it's like, he's given us so many different perspectives. We're, we're on track six and he's already talked about like the guy coming home. He's talked about what it's like, you know, hopefully when will we be happy again? He's talked about the firefighters. I mean, this is like, a full encompassing nine eleven like I mean this is like a Robert Altman movie right right all right let's move on to Worlds Apart all right so I do love this song uh, but it does feature Asif Ali Khan singing Kwali which is I'm gonna fuck this up Sufi Islamic devotional music and this is about the difficulties and struggles facing a couple with different cultural backgrounds. Uh, when the song kicks in, it is perfect, but it sort of has this Desert Rose feel, you know, that Sting song from 1999. Do you know what I'm talking about? No, I, um, I'm i remiss in my uh, understanding of Sting. A Sting? Okay, so here, I'm going to play it for you. All right, so Peter, play... Uh, the La La La's from Worlds Apart. Now, play a little of Desert Rose by Sting. Well, they're both Middle Eastern music, meathead. They no, sound similar. I know similar. that. I know that. But it's got like even that there. It almost kind of feels like Bruce might have been influenced by Desert Rose. I mean, he's got the singer at one point in the Bruce song that just goes la 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 la. la. You know, it's got all the <laughs> elements of Desert Rose. Great right. song. Don't get me wrong. 
great song, yeah. but I, I yeah. just, I once again, it's another song that I felt like didn't flow with the record. But then we get to Let's Be Friends, Skin on Skin. Uh, Peter, play the chorus. Yeah, that's like a revival in a barn. That's fucking it, it just, uplifting. It's, it's very uplifting, but it, I also feel like it feels a little out of place. I think it's just too poppy and catchy, you know? Uh-huh. But but also, but but hear me out, maybe that's Bruce's interpretation of grief. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're all over the place. Like, I, I remember when I lost my friend, you know, one minute I'm... I'm weeping the next minute you're you're laughing. It's like, dude, it's like, you know, when your dad died. Well, I mean, when my dad died, especially because we were sitting Shiva, it's like people come over, you're crying and then you're hungry and then you're laughing and then you're you're no crying emotions. Again. All, all you know, place. there's not there's not different faucets for different emotions. It's all one spigot. And when you're feeling tragic and you're feeling hurt and angry, you also feel joy. You also feel I mean, it's kind of like why we like watching um sad movies because you kind of feel other emotions afterwards it opens you up a little bit yeah well this also i just found out was this was uh up to be this song was against the racism which occurred often in the aftermath of the attacks yeah bruce described it as a cross between sly stone and virginia beach music which i have no idea what the fuck virginia beach music is but uh right on all right, where are we? Further on, up the road. All right, so this was written, recorded, and performed a few years before the record. Uh, Peter, play a minute in. Got a song to say. Not a bad song at all. It's got a westerny feel to it, very cowboy. Um, you know, I guess that's kind of why Johnny Cash covered it for his final album in 2006. Uh, love it. Great song. Don't know if it if if it fits on the record. Thoughts? Yeah, I mean, the, the record is definitely eclectic. Yeah. And and I think he really was trying to avoid it sounding like a, um, you know, like he was going at tragedy head on or if he was, he was you know, I think he was, he was like, I really felt like he wanted to make uh it's called the rising. He wanted this to be uplifting. And so I think he was going to throw in stuff that was poppy and you know western and you know I mean he is he he'd experimented with country music and I think he really you know you think of some like my favorite Stones album and it, this isn't going to people think I'm crazy but I love um I love Some Girls because it's an album that has Punk, country, disco, rock, punk. It's got everything on one album. And I love when a band can show its range like that. Yeah. No, I you know what? I'm I'm glad you're you're putting it that way because it is making me appreciate it a little bit more. If you said it, it's like you can't if every song was just, you know, dark and it, it wouldn't make this record so special people you know you, you'd get tired of it you wouldn't be able to play it live so i completely agree all right uh the next song the fuse uh this has bruce experimenting with some hip-hop rhythm and some studio tricks peter play 330 
That's a great song. Um, talking about the fuse, what always 100% absolutely always pisses you off? Um, people that are selfish. Yeah. I guess like, you know, obviously in LA it's driving, but, uh, you know, just rich people that are selfish. Do you have a, do you have an experience recently that, 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 I mean, before the apocalypse that, that pissed you off with selfishness? Well, like when, when all these, uh, lobbyists for the banks are now fighting to get part of the relief packages, like that makes me angry, like beyond. Well, you knew that was going to happen. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> would you think, you know, think Hollywood video was going to get the money? There's no fucking way, yeah. dude. It's like, right. that's the way the, that's the way the world works. I don't even like tune into that shit. I just have to like, just like, I expect anytime there's, there's a problem with the banks or bailouts or they're always going to get all the money. I, I agree. Yeah. I agree what you're saying about, about selfishness. I, you know what I think we could do? to cure that problem with the world is give everybody in the world a dog and they won't be selfish. Yeah. Cause that taught yeah, me. That's true. That taught me how to not be selfish because not everybody wants to have a kid, kids too much responsibility. A dog's just enough responsibility for you to think of something other than yourself. You know? Yeah. The kid can actually make you even more selfish because now you're taking care of, other people so so your circle becomes small yeah and and you know and the stakes are so high like your dog the stakes aren't that high not high at all dude. you know you love them <laughs> and you want to take care of them but you're not going to throw yourself in front of a bus for a dog no god no lekka's getting killed dude 100 percent. yeah 100 <laughs> percent. she's going down bro i don't i would hate that but god forbid but you know you know, that's that's actually funny because I was talking, you know, Ryan Sickler, right? Ryan, Ryan was, of course, Ryan says to me, he's like, he's like, man, during, you know, when the apocalypse started happening, he's like, dude, you should get a gun. And I was like, dude, I got a Doberman. And he's like, oh, yeah, you're good. I was like, yeah, fuck. Yeah, I am, dude. Can your kid kill somebody? You think you think your kid would. would... He's a black belt. Is he really? Yeah. Is he ever, do you ever, how old is your kid? He's uh, 18. He's 18. No. I think he might be nineteen. Yeah, he's nineteen. When was the when was the first time he bucked up on you? Has he ever like pushed back a little bit? Uh, he won't push back. That's the <laughs> thing is, and I fuck with him every morning. He sleeps till like eleven o'clock, so I go in his room every morning because he's been home from college for a month now. Yeah, and I dive on top of him and I shove my knee into his back and I punch him in the back of the head and I call him a <laughs> pussy and he doesn't fight back. If there's something like. It's like it's like reverse Oedipal complex. Yeah. <laughs> I got pancakes downstairs for you. You eat these motherfuckers. Yeah. All right, Mary's place, uh, based on Sam Cooke's 1962 soul classic "Meet Me at Mary's Place." This is another song that seeks comfort and happiness while still acknowledging the toll the pain has taken. Uh, Peter, uh, play 159. I could just imagine like fifty-year-old women dancing to this, like holding a glass of wine at like a wolf trap or like some sort of like a, you know, like a Meriwether Post Pavilion, because that's classic Bruce. Yeah, upbeat, uplifting. It's just fan fucking tastic, man. Oh, you can see that. It's yeah. You can also see it like, 
you know, uh, Giant Stadium, oh. August show, people in flip flops. Yeah, dude, dude. It's yeah. I'm telling you, this is it's 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 like. I mean, Bruce knows how to write a very anthemic song. Yeah, it's proven in in all the hits. And 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 the more I dig into his catalog, the more I'm like, dude, it's like I don't think Bruce has a bad song. I honestly think he's like he's like you know like I always say that about Beck, and I know Beck's not even comparable to Bruce Springsteen, but. There, there's something to be said, and it's just he knows how to write a party song, a hundred percent. Yeah. Um, right. All right. Moving on to your missing, which uh, a fan of mine and a fan of the podcast um, was. I was texting about this record, and he said the first time he heard "You're Missing," he had to pull his car over because he was crying so hard. Uh, and it's and I get it because it's just a very, very intimate song about coming to terms with the sudden loss of a loved one. Now, I love this last vocal part that I feel sums up the sadness up before uh, you get this incredible organ uh, that takes you back to these happier times. And that's my wife's nickname for my penis, actually. <laughs> Oh, Peter, the play tunnel of love. The tunnel the... of love. She's her asshole is the tunnel of love, and your penis <laughs> is what? What is it? Roller rink, happier times, or or a sudden <laughs> loss of loved one? <laughs> Peter, play two two thirty eight. Children are asking if it's all right. Will you be in our arms tonight? This is one of those songs that I think that if we would have recorded this on Wednesday, I don't think I would have gotten it the way that I got it uh, yesterday or even today. And especially after talking to that uh, that police army member, it's like that it's this song is just rips you apart. Yeah, it's really like one of the reasons why you want to sit down and listen to this album with some headphones on by yourself. Hey, everyone, this is Tuck from Fit for a King in Off-Road Minivan. Every week I bring you fun interviews alongside your favorite metalcore entertainers with my new podcast, Get Tucked. Join me every Monday with bands like Counterparts, Crystal Lake, like Moths to Flames, and many more. We play unsigned and undiscovered bands, deep dive into each artist's history, and of course provide the greatest breakdowns in current metalcore. Tune in to Get Tucked every Monday, out now through Sound Talent Media. Um... We've now come to the title track, and in my opinion, I think that this is the—and I mean, I said this at the beginning, but I think this song in particular is the greatest thing to ever have been done to honor the firefighters who died in the towers. Because um, you just got to think about, like, what these guys had to do. You know, you hear it in some of the other songs, like Into the Fire— but that is the most heroic thing I think anyone has ever done in my lifetime because I wasn't there for Vietnam. I wasn't there for World War II. But to run into those towers knowing, knowing that this could be it and, and you still have this job to do to save these people that, are, that for the most part are probably unsavable is so fucking selfless. Yeah. And and what's so great about this song, Greg, 
is that it tells the entire story from the firefighter's point of view. It talks about waking up, going up to the towers. It talks about being inside in the fire. And then it talks about the afterlife. And um, a couple nights ago, uh, I think it was, it wasn't a Wednesday. It was on Tuesday before we recorded this. I, I put this on. I was listening to this song with headphones and then the bridge came and it's just pure poetry. Peter, play the bridge. Um, it's it's so moving, and it, I think it encapsulates it encapsulates the album in terms of like trying to touch on these very heavy themes and trying to be personal with them, and at the same time, it's driving towards bringing you to a higher place by the end of the song. Yeah, I in my opinion, Greg, I I feel like this song is why this album is on the 500 greatest albums list. Like this song alone makes this album worthy. Every yeah. every note, I feel every note, I feel every lyric. And I what I was thinking about while I was listening to this, I was I wondered if Bruce knew how special this song was while he was writing it. Do you know what I mean? Like does he did yeah. he know that this was is like I got to name the album this this every, it was because it's just so complete about not just the vibe of the record but the vibe of 2002, the vibe of the tragedy. And and then it's got that fucking la 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 part that is so fucking good, right? And I mean, if in terms of believing in it, like even though it's the title track, he also buried it as like what is it, the seventh song it's, on the no, album? It's the this is the thirteenth song on the record. Yeah, was done. Yeah, yeah. Jesus, I, I would have thought you would have opened the album with this, right? Do you know what I mean? But no, because it's not with the way, dude. He's so descriptive of what it was like. In, you know, running into that fire. Like, I'll just read the bridge. There's spirits above and behind me, faces gone black, eyes burning bright. May their precious blood bind me, Lord, as I stand before your fiery light. So that's about a guy, literally, this is it. He's he's dying. And, and he's making that transition. And, I mean, it's pure poetry. Everything about this song, in my opinion, is perfect. Uh, if I wasn't a huge Bruce Springsteen's uh, fan before this. I am now all because of the song, because I was weeping, weeping, listening to this. Cause yeah. I, it just, it, it just, it hit me. And I, and I thought about every fireman that passed away. And I thought about every, just, it just, I couldn't even imagine. Like I want to dude, if, if I would still have Pete Davidson's number, I would have called him and told him I loved him and, and thanked him for his dad's service. Well, that would be very sweet of you. And then you'd probably also ask to open for him in Phoenix. hundred percent, dude. Uh, that song actually won the 2003 Grammy for best rock song and best male rock vocal performance. I want to ask you talking about the firefighters talking about heroes. Uh, so I have, it's a two part question. What is your definition of a hero? I guess a hero is somebody that, uh, puts others in, in front of himself and then also overcomes fear. You know, they say, uh, you know, courage is, is being scared, but then doing it anyway. Yeah. So who who's your hero? Who's my hero? Hmm. I mean, I guess I have a lot of heroes. I mean, there's poetic heroes, but then I guess in terms of manly heroes, 
Like I think of Obama as a guy who, you know, grew up with a single mom and without a lot of money and black in a country where there's a lot of racism and was able to uh, get into the White House, get fucking hamstrung from day one and still fight for what he believed in right through to the end. You know, that's that's pretty heroic. Yeah, Um, I completely agree with you. I I love Obama uh, and especially it's exacerbated now. Uh, with the administration we have and and the funny thing is I actually have money and I kind of want to be a Republican but he's making it hard it's like dude just just stop hating on people and just you know cut my taxes and shut the fuck up and then he just doesn't right so he needs to listen to the rising all right let's move on to paradise um Peter, uh, play 212 in Paradise. I brush your cheek with my fingertips. I taste the void upon your lips. So this one's an interesting song because uh, it reminds me of Simon and Garfunkel's The Sound of Silence. Yeah. Because um, it examines the transition point between life and death. And the first verse was inspired by some recent, uh, I guess around the time, teenage girl suicide bombing, uh, and then the empty promise of paradise they were seeking. The second verse was a tribute to a female fan who told him she lost her husband at the Pentagon on 9-11. And then the last verse is about those who lost their loved ones in the symbolic river and try to swim to them only to discover there's nothing there, so they swim back to the surface. And as Bruce is quoted saying about this song. He said, Hey, life is here. It's all you have. And it's here and now. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I see that. And, and with the song, it's, it's, you know, it, it almost feels like he could have ended the album with this song. It was that beautiful. Hmm. Yeah. And it's a come down after the rising. Yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. Because where do you go? You can't just build it back up. You can't go right into my city of ruins. Mm. It's like you got to ease us. You got to take us down a notch because of that. Uh, Great song. Uh, And then he closes the record with My City of Ruins. And this was written a year before 9-11 and first performed for a Christmas show benefit to revitalize Bruce's deteriorating hometown of Asbury Park, New Jersey. But it does feel in character for this record. Uh, Peter, play four minutes in. All right, I want to change my opinion. But yeah, this song 100% should have ended the record. Uh, as we were listening to that little clip right there, I was like, yeah, dude, you have to rise up. You have yeah. to leave everybody on a positive note. Right, right. Yeah, and it's amazing that that wasn't written about 9-11 and it fits in so well. Well, I think I think you could probably take a lot of Bruce's songs from older records and you could you could just, you know, put them on this record. Yeah. I mean, dude, he's, he writes... You know, it's it's almost like some of these songs, like you said, are speaking to what's going on in the world, what you're dealing with and everything. And and I mean, what's great about this song is that I think it was used. Yeah, I'm reading this right. Yeah, it was it's played at like churches around the world, like after Hurricane Sandy and Hurricane Katrina and the earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand. Like this is a. 
This is a song used to uh, to rebuild people. Like this is you come out of a disaster. It's like you need something like this, and I think it's a perfect way to end the record. Yeah, beautiful. All right, you want to do some facts and get out of here? Sure. Come on, facts, facts. <laughs> come on, facts and facts. All right, here we go. Ten days after 9-11, Springsteen opened the America A Tribute to Heroes telethon by introducing My City in Ruins as a prayer for our fallen brothers and sisters and started its solo on guitar and harmonica before other members of the band joined in. Um, although he originally planned on performing Into the Fire, but it hadn't been finished yet. So let me ask you this. What's been your best accident? My best accident. Uh, I guess my daughter. <laughs> Don't tell her that. No, I, mean, I hope she doesn't listen to this podcast. She's a, she's a huge fleece army cadougal, so she's gonna she's gonna hear this and and probably you know. Well, we'll cut it out. We'll cut this. Yeah. Out. No, no, you can leave it in. So she I, should know. <laughs> it's it's time she knew. <laughs> You know, because she's gotten a little bit full of herself around the house. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's probably the best answer anybody could have given. Do you want to add to that or? or... Nope. Okay, no, perfect. Let's leave it there. Okay, good. All right. In describing the band's return after the long hiatus, Bruce said, for the first time I made a record with the E Street Band in 18 years, I wanted to record, I wanted a record that was going to be fun for people to listen to and exciting that people use the way people used rock records. I'm fucking this up, which is either to clean your house to, or to change your life. If you want to, you know, I want to ask you this from that. What's the first thing you'll do when the quarantine is over? I'm going to fuck the first thing that moves. Really? And I'm hoping it's my wife. (laughs) I mean, you know, that'd be a good idea. Like, you know, just fucking, Aren't you guys just going crazy right now? Like, no, guys- we can't have sex because all everybody's home. It's crazy. You know, usually we have sex during the day because my daughter's room is next to ours. Yeah, and so you know the kids go off to school. My wife doesn't work. I'm home during the day, and we we make love like fucking teenagers. Oh, yeah. I'm sorry, yeah. dude. It's tough. Are you guys eating well? Eating very well. Yeah, yeah. Trader Joe's. Oh, the best. Yeah. <laughs> That's that Arizona touring money right there, baby. All right. Last fact. All right. Waiting on a sunny day with its simple sing-along chorus became a crowd favorite with lots of drawn-out Bruce interaction at their concerts. In fact, it became so popular and expected that longtime fans would use that time to go to the bathroom. <laughs> All right. Which is which I could see because I could see him him dragging waiting on a sunny day for like you know to like a twelve minute jam. He's like, oh, now Clarence, you play. Now you yeah. play. Now, now right. you play. Um. All right. So this is a two part question. And being that Bruce is is someone that we that you know I know the fans how dedicated they are, and you are a dedicated fan. But I got to ask you this: What's your least favorite Bruce Springsteen song? Um. Probably dancing in the dark. I just it just represented like a time when uh, I felt possessive of Bruce. I felt like he was mine. I found him early, and my friends rejected him. Yeah. And then I 
felt like then he was on MTV and he was starting to dress cooler. He'd he'd given up his grungy look a little bit and he was and I just sort of felt like this isn't what I want him to become. But now I like it. But I'd say there was a time when I really fucking hated that song. No, I I get it, dude. I, I I've I've fallen out of love with a lot of artists that I just was obsessed with. And and it comes back. Like there's a band that's funny, there's a band in Britain that won the Mercury Music Prize years ago, and I, I'm obsessed with like British uh, rock. But this band called Gomez, do you know of them? No. All right, so Gomez, great band. Uh, inspired, I'd say inspired by Bruce Springsteen a little bit. Like it's got, they kind of have the, like a feel. It's very like it's just rock and roll. And and I was obsessed with them. And then the music turned a little bit, and I just like I got later into my 20s, and I was like, ah, you know what, I'm done with this band, and I haven't listened to them in years. And then recently, as I got older, I I somehow just stumbled back into their music, and I'm like, oh my god, this band is incredible. So I get it. Like, yeah, they, one bad album. Same shit with Beck, dude. He made that record Colors, and I fucking I I was obsessed with him, and now it's like, you know, I just he made that record, and I was like, yeah, I think I'm good. And, yeah. But slowly, I'm kind of, I'm getting back into them. So it's just a matter right. of of just time. Now, let me ask you this: What's your favorite Bruce Springsteen song? Jungle Land. I still feel like it's this. It's long. I don't know how long it is. Probably eleven minutes. And it's just a. It's a. It's got the greatest sax solo of of Clarence's career, and um, and it's just like. Uh, Again, goes back to the roots of why I love Bruce because it's about being, being in a town, and uh, and it having heroic proportions, even though it's all within the microcosm of just like a, the teenage teenagers in a small town, but it means so much more. Yeah, I I don't even I've I've got to listen to Jungle Land. I, I think I know I know it. What record is that off of? Born in the USA. Okay. No, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Born to Run. I think it's the last song on Born to Run. I, I honestly think that one of the best songs ever written in the history of mankind is Born to Run. I don't think there's yeah. a better feeling than the, where you know the part in the song where it's like, it's, they do the solos and it's like, and then he holds it. And then when yeah. he kicks you back with that, one, two, three, cock in the skyways, that might be... One of the best moments in recorded music history, yeah. in my yeah. opinion. All uh, right. Uh, uh, Greg, I love you. I'm so glad this worked out. I'm so glad we got to sit down and talk about this, man. Yeah, um, sorry for all the hiccups, but this was great. I really loved hanging out with you, talking thanks, about man. one of my favorite albums, and it makes me want to listen to it all over again now. Do it again. Just keep listening to it, brother. Thank you so much, bud. All right, take care. The one and only Greg Fitzsimmons. Follow Greg on Twitter at Greg Fitz Show. Also follow him on Instagram at Greg Fitzsimmons. And for all things Greg, head over to GregFitzsimmons.com. And make sure you check out his podcasts, the Fitzdog Radio Podcast, Sunday Papers, and Childish. Also watch Greg's special Life on Stage and buy his book, Dear Miss Fitzsimmons. Also, subscribe to The 500 on Spotify. We're making a movement over here, people, now. We just listened to Bruce Springsteen from 2002. This week, 
Our music director, little Maddie Penfield, chose Brian Fallon, who burst onto the scene with his New Jersey band, the Gaslight Anthem. And Brian actually joined Bruce on stage in front of 200,000 in London's Hyde Park performing No Surrender at the Hard Rock Calling Festival. Here, the next generation, inspired by the boss when you listen to Brian Fallon's new single, When You're Ready, streaming now on Spotify. And you can find that link on our website, the500podcast.com. Next week, it's Diana Ross and the Supremes Week as we dive into their 2001 anthology album, Anthology. You've got some homework to do. Listen to the album on Spotify. Stay fleecy. Dougal. Dougal. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of that one. One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Next Chapter Podcasts.